turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. We're going to be looking um, as we continue through the book of Esther this morning at Esther 2 verse 19 through chapter 3 verse 4. And while you're getting there, I do want to say um, I know the content the last two Sundays has been um, tough. It's been um, intense and maybe difficult. Um, It has been for me. Uh, Maybe some of you have thought, why do we even need to uh, cover this stuff? Um, But but I want to say that that all of that um, is background to the things happening to Esther and to where the story is headed. And it's the background in which God chooses to silently uh, work out His plan. And so this week, thankfully, the content is less intense. for the most part, and so um, we're going to read it together and then work through it. So go ahead and stand. We're beginning with verse 19 of chapter 2, reading through uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. The word is truth, we praise you for it, and we ask you for your help in it, Lord. We want to know you. We want to to walk according to your word and according to your ways, and so please help us today. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. As we're getting into this, I want to set the scene uh, a bit. The scene of this story is happening at the king's gate, or this part of the story is happening at the king's gate. All of the, the bad things that have happened up to this, leading up to this part, all of that is setting the stage for what's going to happen from this point forward. There's, there's a, a mini story of rescue here in our text today. The king is rescued. But there's much more going on to set the stage for a great rescue that is coming in this book. And we have in this this small storyline that we're looking at today what will happen on a larger scale through the remainder of the book. Just in, in, in the text we have today, we have betrayal, 
we have peril, we have plans thwarted, we have rescue, and we have justice. Those are themes that we see in the, the picture of the book of Esther. So, let's, let's get into it and work through it. Verse 19, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, this, this verse brings reality to the euphoria, if you felt it, of the previous verse, where it says, the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes and to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. We don't even have time to, to think, wow, I mean, relief to, to, to those, um, relief of taxes and gifts to um, those from, with, with royal generosity. The king might be coming around here, maybe softening now that Esther's his wife, maybe he's softening. We don't have time to, to like ponder that. Because verse 19 reminds us that Esther operates in an environment that uses and abuses women who can be gathered on a whim. And it says that Mordecai sits at the king's gate. Now, this is significant because, first, it allows Mordecai to be present and hear the plot against the king. But also, it may indicate that Mordecai had an official role serving the king because he's there. Now, I want to mention something about Mordecai here. There are a lot of scholars who believe that Mordecai was a eunuch. And there are reasons for that. He wasn't married. He didn't have kids. He has access to the harem without repercussion. If that is true, it would possibly answer why he didn't go back to Jerusalem because it would be shameful for him. All of that to say, I'm not convinced either way, but he has access to information and to the harem in some way. Verse 20 continues, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai, Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. You can see the respect that she has for Mordecai here. All of this time, interacting with all of these people through trauma, and now reigning as queen, she doesn't tell anyone that she's Jewish because Mordecai told her not to. Verse 21, in those days as Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. Mordecai walks around in front of the harem court in order to be close to Esther. We saw that last week too. He's checking in on how she is doing. And it's possible he can do this because of his official position, but we're not told. But he's there, and being there, he hears about this plot of these two eunuchs. They're angry at the king. We're not told why they're angry, but honestly, each of us could probably come up with a list of reasons that they were angry with the king just from what we've learned about the king already in the first couple of chapters. But they're angry. And Mordecai hears this plot that they're going to kill the king. 
And his response is to tell Esther, who then goes to the king and tells the king, it says, in the name of Mordecai. In other words, in other words he tells the king about this plot against him and then gives credit to Mordecai. He says, Mordecai heard this and gets him credit. It goes on in verse 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So, of course, they investigate to see if this is true. And finding that it's true, it says that both men were hanged on the gallows. Crimes against the king or the, the king's family were punishable by death. Sometimes an entire family was put to death for the crime of one member of the family. Now, if you have the ESV, that's what I preach out of, there is a little number next to the word gallows, okay? You see that number? And if you look at the bottom of your page, and let me just pause for a second, okay? Those numbers matter, okay? Those numbers matter. Whenever you see a number like that, check and see why, okay? Because this is... This is important, all right? This is why. If you check to see what the note says for that, you'll find that it says at the bottom, suspended on a stake. Some translations translate it rightly, impaled on stakes. They were impaled on stakes. Now, that actually doesn't refer to execution. They were executed. They were killed. But, but what happened to them is not that they were hanged on gallows, it's they were, they were impaled on stakes, and that wasn't the execution. That's what happened after they were executed. It refers to the public disgrace of dead bodies being hung to shame them in front of people. And it was a message, right? It's a message to anyone that's seeing their bodies hanging there. This is what happens to anyone who would come against the king. Esther and Mordecai are used here to rescue the king. And all of the details of Mordecai's discovery are recorded in the king's book of Chronicles, it says. Now, I want us to consider this just, just as a bit of application in the midst of the text. We're going to step outside of it or maybe... Um, Better, we're going to step into the text just a little bit here. I've been blessed with five boys. Some of you have been blessed with girls. I wasn't, but I can imagine the joy that that is. Now, I want you to think about this. If you heard someone was thinking about killing the man who took your little girl in an ungodly manner, and that is putting it lightly. Would you struggle to do the right thing? Would you be tempted to ignore it and just let it happen? You see what I'm saying? Mordecai hears that two people are about to kill the man who kidnapped not just his cousin who he raised, but hundreds or thousands of girls. And Mordecai learns of that, 
And he goes and tells Esther so that she can tell the king. Now, there may be reasons why he does that that we just don't know that aren't in the text. But he does it. He does the right thing. Galatians chapter 6.10, Paul writes this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Not only to those who are of the household of faith. And a couple things there from what Paul's saying. First, we're especially to do good to those of the household of faith. That doesn't mean cornerstone. It means to those who belong to Jesus. So it includes people of cornerstone. But it means those who belong to to Jesus. We're especially to do good to all who belong to Jesus. But we are to do good to everyone, even those who do not belong to Jesus, no matter what they believe. What Paul is saying there is that their good should be our goal. Their good should be our goal. Why? Because we are disciples of the one who died for his enemies. Mordecai hears of a plot against the king knowing all of the atrocities that he has done. And he does what is right. And for his life-saving intervention, what happens? A simple notation is made in the Chronicles of the King. No parade, no party in a story about a king who looks for reasons to throw parties. And no promotion, not for Mordecai, but there is a promotion, a significant one. We learn in chapter 3, verse 1, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now here in chapter 3, the main plot of the story of Esther begins. And like chapter 2, chapter 3 opens with the, the passing of an unspecified period of time. By the time the decree against the Jews is issued in chapter 3, verse 12, we're not going to cover today, but by the time we get to verse 12, it's the 12th year of Ahasuerus' reign. So it's five years after Esther becomes the queen. It, it identifies Haman here as the Agagite. And by identifying Haman that way, the text emphasizes the connection between Haman and the Amalekite king Agag, which is mentioned in 1 Samuel 15.8. It confirms the connection between Mordecai and King Saul hinted at in Esther 2.5. So this is establishing the continuation of an ancient enmity between two characters, Mordecai, 
of Saul's line encounters Haman of the line of King Agag. Verse 2, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, everyone is commanded now to bow to Haman. He has been elevated to what seems to be the highest position second to King Ahasuerus. Everyone bows and pays homage to Haman except for one man, Mordecai. And what we're going to find is that Mordecai's refusal endangers the entire Jewish people. And yet, the reason isn't clearly stated. Verses 3 and 4, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Mordecai, the same Mordecai whose loyalty to the king has just been demonstrated a few verses earlier, is now refusing to obey the king. Remember, this is the king's command. It's not Haman's command. It's the king's command. The king commanded everyone to bow to Haman. And so the officials question him again and again. Why won't you bow? Why will you not pay homage to Haman? And their question is both a request for a reason as well as a means of urging him to obey this command. And whatever his reasons, Mordecai refused to waver from this rebellion against the king. All they're able to ascertain was that Mordecai, being a Jew, had something to do with him not bowing. Now, I want us to think here, okay? Because it's easy for us to read the text... In the story of Esther, and then just say, well, Mordecai is a holy man who rightly refuses to bow to man. But let's think about this, because it is likely not that. This is likely not because he's being a faithful Jew who won't bow to any but God. Now, why would we even think that? First of all, we're going to find out later in the book, Mordecai accepts the accolades and the honor that he refuses to give to Haman when it's given to him. So so either Mordecai is incredibly hypocritical, which I don't think he is, or there's something else going on here. Also, there isn't a law or text given to Israel telling them that they shall not bow to another to pay honor. In fact, there is a biblical tradition of Israelites bowing to human beings. Abraham bows to the Hittites. Joseph's brothers bow to him to show honor as he also was in second of command to Pharaoh. Moses bows to his father-in-law. Nathan bows to King David. So there's not an established law or command that Mordecai would be following when he refuses to bow to Haman. 
And so it is likely that since the only thing we know that it is, re- that it is related to him being a Jew, it's likely that it has something to do with the enmity that continues between these two characters, Mordecai of Saul's line encountering and now resisting Haman of Agag's line. Yet again, we're, we're only told it has to do with him being a Jew. Now, as we come to the end of this, what do we learn from this about God? The truth is, I want to be able to tell you a lot of things about Mordecai's character, but there's really nothing given to us. There's there's not much told to us. He seems like a a very good guy who takes his cousin as his daughter and, and cares for her, raising her in this Persian culture, which would be difficult. He seems to be faithful to honor the king just as the Lord commands us to, even protecting him from assassination after what the king had done to his cousin and so many others, and yet he refuses to obey the king's command to give honor to Haman. And so we can't, we can't tell a lot about his character from what is written. There's nothing specifically written. But there is a God whose character is made known. A God who is good always. A God who is faithful always. A God who is loving and kind always. And one of the clearest examples of his character is something we can consider from the text today. We are reminded of the goodness of the gospel from what we read in the text today. Two of the king's eunuchs were seeking to kill the king. But their plan is found out, and what happened to them? These criminals were impaled on stakes. And that's justice, right? That's justice. But that's not the gospel. The gospel tells a better story where criminals are set free. How? Because another came and was hung on a tree, embracing the shame of that and for all to see. And he did that on our behalf. He did that on behalf of the criminals. That's the story of the gospel. We are all criminals as it relates to obeying God's law. Even though we might say that we have never hated God, we all have. If we're refusing to submit to Him, if we're refusing to submit to God, if we are going the other way than where He calls us to go, then aren't we doing exactly what the two eunuchs did? Aren't we living as if we wish that the king was dead? And even more, we know from the Bible that it was our sin that drove Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, to the cross. He died because of our sin, or He died because of us. So we're guilty. We're just as guilty as these eunuchs in the text. But God doesn't look down and say, kill them and hang their bodies for all to see. That's not the story of the gospel. No, God sent His Son 
and He came and lived among us, and He showed us how to live and how to love. He showed us what His kingdom is like, that it isn't at all like the kingdoms of the world. It's, it's what many refer to as an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom of love where the oppressed are embraced, where the prisoner is set free, where the immigrants are not only welcomed but invited, where the law is love and the king is benevolent. And then after displaying for us that upside-down kingdom, he did the most upside-down thing a king could possibly do, and he laid down his life for his enemies. He died. He was crucified so that whoever would believe in him would be saved. Jesus, the Son of God, is the one hung on a stake. That's the good news of the gospel. And he calls us to follow him. As I mentioned earlier, we are disciples of the one who died for his enemies. And so what kind of disciple will we be? Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 14, to us who are called to be disciples of the one who died for his enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is a discipleship that looks like Jesus, our King who died for us. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. What a blessing it is that we can do this week after week, that we can feast together, even on these small symbols. We feast in remembrance of a great king. Paul, again, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul continues in chapter 11 with a warning. A warning that we not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. 
And so our encouragement often here for you is if you don't have a relationship with the Lord, if you don't know Him, if you've not been set free from your sins, if you've not experienced His grace being lavished upon you in that way, our encouragement for you during this time of our service would be just as, as people are dismissed to come and, and, and get the bread and the cup and go back to their seats, just let that pass for you. Sit out of that part of the service. But I would encourage you in that, in that time that you would ponder and think about this God. God isn't a king like Ahasuerus who immediately responds with execution for those who come against him. He's a God of grace who invites us to come and to be forgiven, to be welcomed, to be made right, to be made clean. And so in this time, I would encourage you that you would pray and that you would seek Him, that you'd partake of Jesus today rather than the elements that represent what He's done. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing together as you're dismissed and as you receive the the bread and the cup and you go back and as we sing and we wait, let's wait with anticipation and joy. We're blessed to fellowship together through the bread and the cup and we're blessed to fellowship with Jesus in that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. You are a God of grace and mercy and we're so grateful. We're so undeserving we're so grateful. We pray that you would help us. Help us to be a people, Lord, who delight in what you have done. And even in this time, as we take the bread and we take the cup and we hold it and we sing these words, Lord, we want to honor you in our hearts. We want to worship you as king and we want to remember the kind of king that you are, the kind of king that we want to display to this world. We pray for your help in Christ's name. Amen.